Welcome to Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This season, I'm sitting down with thought leaders in and around the oil and gas industry to look at the competing trends of ESG and anti-ESG with an eye to what's coming next and how companies can chart a consistent course that's responsive but not reactionary. And today's conversation is so interesting. We go outside of American politics, but into global politics in a really big way. I speak with Juan Manuel Rojas Payan, who's the president of Promigas. Now, Promigas operates in Colombia and Peru as the distribution company for natural gas, and they also provide electric power. My guest, Juan Manuel, received a master's in public policy from Harvard Kennedy School, and he also has master's and bachelor's in economics from La Universidad de los Andes in Bogota. Before Promigas, he served as the Corporate VP of Strategy and Business Development at Ecopetrol, which is Colombia's largest oil producer. In addition to his multiple leadership roles with companies, Juan Manuel was also the Vice Minister of Energy in Colombia in 2000 and 2001. Today's conversation is longer than usual, and that's because it's so awesome. And there's so many things I want you to hear. I want you to hear about a country that is facing the conversation about getting off fossil fuels today while they're still trying to raise literally millions of people out of poverty. I want you to hear about a company that is both addressing energy poverty in a completely unique way through their energy poverty index and also setting decarbonization goals while working to expand access. Juan Manuel is at the center of, I think, the globe's most important questions about climate, energy access, and meeting human potential. So here's my conversation with Juan Manuel Rojas Payan. Juan Manuel, bienvenidos. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thanks podcast. Thanks for having me, Tisha. It's an honor to be here speaking with you. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed joining you in Bogota earlier this month, and I want to spend time today talking about your message that Colombia is going from an era of natural gas prosperity to scarcity, a really important message. Before we do that, I think it would be helpful to our audience to understand what Promigas is, who you are, how many customers you serve, and the ways in which you're transforming lives in Colombia through access to natural gas. Okay, no, definitely I can explain uh, what Promigas is and, and how we impact the lives of a lot of Colombians and Peruvians. Uh, we are the largest uh, gas transportation and distribution company in the Andean region. We transport 46% of the high-pressure natural gas in Colombia and 38% of the distribution network uh, in Colombia uh, belongs to Promigas. We serve 4.5 million customers. That is approximately, we are impacting 20 million people per day in Colombia on a daily basis, serving them with natural gas. And, and let me uh, go into the demassification process uh, that Colombia underwent during the last 30 years, because I think it's a very good example, not only in Latin America, but worldwide. Residential coverage in our country uh, went from 6% 
in the early 90s to 70% last year. So that what does that mean? We connected to the gas network 10 million Colombians per decade. Currently, we have around 38 million customers and uh, to 40 million customers. And I think that's very important for Colombia. Of those, Promigas serves around 18 to 20 million, as I mentioned earlier. And the other thing that I want to highlight, teacher, around this is that uh, this has been a significant social revolution for the country, considering that more than 85% of those customers, of those 38 to 40 million people, belong to social economic levels one, two, and three, which in our country are very poor, poor or vulnerable from, from on a monetary standpoint. It's like a, a, a social revolution. If I may go into some details and giving numbers, let me highlight four main points of what's the role of natural gas in the Colombian economy. The first, and of course the most important, is the strategic source for cooking and for warming for around 40 million Colombians, as I mentioned earlier. The second is that it provides energy security and reliability to the country and to 70% of the population because it represents 21% of Colombians' primary energy demand, natural gas. Third, of those 11 million customers that represent around 40 million people, Promigas, as I mentioned, serves 4.2 million, which represents around 18 to 20 million people. And given that they are among the poorest or poor, we are helping them to save money on a monthly basis. And in some cases, it is between 5 to 7% of what in Colombia we call the minimum wage. That is between 50,000 to 70,000 pesos. How do they save this? We are substituting wood and coal and propane connections. And that substitution for natural gas, for cooking and thermal uses in those households, allows them to save between 50,000 to 70,000 pesos. That's 5 to 7% of a minimum wage in Colombia. So we're also contributing to the well-being and monetary well-being of the households. And last but not least, the natural gas in Colombia, it's very important to provide reliability for thermal energy production. We have been able to substitute liquids, generation with liquids and with coal, allowing for a reduction in greenhouse gases. And today, uh, definitely our generation system, which is mainly hydro-oriented, is supported by a thermal system that relies mainly in natural gas. So those, those are four main issues that I want to highlight with numbers um, associated to, to the importance of natural gas in Colombia and the role of Promegas. We are very important in transportation, distribution of that a energy source for the country. The picture that you paint 
is such a great global example of the role of natural gas. And I just want to to expand upon this picture for the listeners for a minute, because getting natural gas to a community that doesn't have it means that women and children often aren't spending six to eight hours a day collecting wood. It means that families aren't cooking over coal and exposed to indoor air pollution, which is one of the largest killers of globally, indoor air pollution from cooking over either biomass or coal. And then this idea that you mentioned in your fourth pillar, industrialization provides the building block for entire economies to move out of out of poverty. You can't actually raise a community into economic prosperity without access to uh, industrial scale energy and heat. And so the picture you're creating is is one of really, you called it social revolution. And I, I just want to re-emphasize how important this is and that all of these activities actually reduce climate emissions compared to the alternatives, which are, of course, cooking over wood, biomass, you know, wood or or using coal, for example, in industrial processes. Of course, as economies um, develop, the total number of emissions are going to go up. But the transformation that's possible is just so critical. I was so affected by the, the story of Columbia's transformation. Did I miss anything in that? Or does that align with your experience of this 10 years of natural gas system expansion in Colombia? No, I love I love that you you, you make this point, Tisha, and mainly because when we speak about energy transition, a lot of the people think that it's so unique and, 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 and it's a single process that it's similar for every country. For developing countries like Colombia, like Peru and other Latin American countries, we must understand that there are important parts of the population that are only beginning the transition, but in a different way, is moving away from cooking with wood and coal to use better source of energy. They're moving away from an energy source that is no high, that is not highly intensive to more highly intensive energy sources. When you go to a rural household in Colombia, you only have one light bulb in the household. What we need to show the world is that we need to increase the number of light bulbs in that household because they need to grow from one single space in that rural household to three spaces and one for cooking and two bedrooms. And they need three, four, five light bulbs. So they're only beginning their transition, but the transition is from wood and coal and biomass to a more reliable, consistent energy source, like gas, like electricity. So that's part of what's happening in our population. And I, later, I, I, later on in, in this conversation, I would like to speak about the poverty energy index that we developed because it's very important and it will give you some data of what the status in Colombia of energy poverty is. I absolutely want to get to that. And there's so many things I want to talk about, including when we talk about the energy poverty in index, I want to foreshadow for our audience that you're not just, Promigas isn't just delivering natural gas. 
you are also working on the on energy transition commitments in a really meaningful way. You are doing both in a way that I find inspiring and amazing, actually. So it, we're not just talking about a role for natural gas. We're also talking about a company that's actively preparing for a decarbonizing energy system. So we will get to that as well. First, let's talk about something that was shocking to me as I prepared to come to Bogota and speak with energy stakeholders there. And that is that that Colombia has natural gas resources. It's blessed with abundant resources. It's blessed with coal resources as well and oil resources. But because of really a drive to address climate and a an interest in prioritizing uh, climate politics, Colombia is in a position of likely natural gas scarcity. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, first, if I got that right, if I understood that right. And then second, why is this happening? What brought us to this moment? And you're right. You got it right. And it's alarming, given that now we are at a time of gas scarcity. And, and one of these sectors' most pressing challenges currently is ensuring the supply of natural gas in the medium and long term. And it's alarming because conventional gas reserves have been declining in the country at an accelerated pace, actually. Currently, if you take a look to our reserves book, we have 7.2 years, which is the lowest level in 17 years. These low reserve levels, plus rising wellhead gas prices over the past two years, plus recent supply restrictions to unregulated demand in some areas of the country due to technical issues with some operators in some fields, highlight that Colombia transitioned from an era of abundance to a scarcity of natural gas during the past years. And this is alarming. And therefore, for policymakers, for industry people, it's very important to keep focus on the policy actions that are necessary to avoid that scarcity. What kinds of actions? First, the commitment to continue exploring our own basins. We have a lot of potential. Offshore, we have discovered fields. We need to continue exploring the Atlantic in Colombia, the lower Magdalena Valley Basin, the Cesar Rancheria Basin, the foothills in the middle part of the country. The resources there, according to different studies, are abundant. But activism has been taking focus out of the need that we have as a country to continue exploring our own resources. So that's the first policy action that we need um, develop, to develop our own reserves. The second is be open to imports. When it's economical and efficient, we should be open to imports and also to the development of our own resources. So we need a government that is much more committed to gas exploration. And we need the industry and our main stakeholders, customers, to help public officials realize the need to secure our energy with natural gas. That's, that's key. 
two follow-up questions for you. One, I want to make sure I understand correctly. While while Colombia's reserve natural gas reserves are declining, Colombia has potential resources that have not been explored or exploited. So I want to make sure I got that right. And then the second thing uh, as a follow-up I want to ask is when there are natural gas shortages in other places, usually people don't stop using energy. They just use different energy. So my guess would be that people in Colombia will return to coal or return to biomass. Are those two things accurate? What's your take on each of them? Those two things are accurate. We are having significant problems convincing convincing some industrial users that for their production processes, thermal processes currently use coal to move to natural gas. They are not dumb. They just see, why would I move if we only have 7.2 years of reserves? If you give me a long-term view that we will have that natural gas available with reliability, I can transform my industrial process. So they are reluctant to move away from coal because they are not having the long-term signal of natural gas availability. So that's the consequence of not uh, providing the country with more gas in in its reserves book. The second, I think it's they don't want to be vulnerable to external shocks. A lot of energy security, and some mention it as energy sovereignty, it's critical after the Russian-Ukraine war. What happened to Europe and the reliance mostly in a unique supplier has made the world think about the importance of energy security and sovereignty. And that's why we need, and I'm very outspoken when I say that we are in an era of scarcity and all options should be available. What are those options? We need to explore our own resources. At the continental level in Colombia, we have available resources of natural gas in the foothills, lower Magdalena Valley, Cesar Rancheria Valley, and basins. And we have available resources in the offshore. We need to continue with conviction exploring those internal resources. But we also must be open to gas imports, not only from one source, not only from Venezuela. We should be able to import from Venezuela, but also from the Atlantic. We have a regasification plant close to Cartagena. We can bring from the US Gulf Coast or from the Caribbean. We're currently bringing shipments from Trinidad and Tobago and from the US Gulf Coast. And we should be able to develop a regasification plant in the Pacific, in the southwest part of the country. That will open the country to all the Pacific uh, availability of LNG, Australia, Mozambique, etc. So all the options should be on the table, not relying on one single option. And being able to secure our own resources is critical. Otherwise, we will go back the poorest households to cooking with wood and coal, and the industry won't convert itself to natural gas, leaving a more contaminant source like fuels, liquids, or coal. Juan Manuel, what you're really painting for me is a picture of 
in a world, and, and, and we, we're having this conversation as it's New York Climate Week, even though our listeners will hear this later, and there's constant calls to end all fossil fuel production and use. And what you're really painting for me is a picture of a country where in the absence of access to more natural gas, it's slowing down the transition off of coal. And the second piece that you're painting is actually sending a sending communities back in time to uh, both economically um, and emission and with their emissions footprint and preventing their ability to modernize and join a modern economy. Would access to lack of access to gas literally set Colombia back a decade? And is that is that what what we we would be talking about here? I would probably not be that alarmistic in terms of what what, what will take place. Most probably is slow down the pace of the transition. Mm. And why? Because we have our gasification terminal and we will be importing natural gas to provide the country with the security that the internal lack of natural gas developed by ourselves is not giving to users and customers. So at the end of the day, we will probably be importing. But given that imports are more expensive that the natural gas that we produce in our country, the, we will slow down the pace of the transition. Industries won't convert themselves at the rate that we were seeing. Vehicles that are leaving liquids, diesel, to convert themselves to natural gas will probably not be converted as quickly as we thought. And connecting the last mile to the service. What is the last mile? What do I call the last mile? Those rural areas in Colombia. We have 1.7 million families that still cook with wood that need to be connected to a more reliable and healthy source of cooking and energy. Those 1.7 million families, if there's no natural gas in the future, will probably not be connected as quickly as we initially thought. So I think it's it's a reduction in the pace of the transition rather than going back, as you were mentioning. That's really helpful. And it, it's an interesting example of perfect being the enemy of the good. Access to natural gas is not perfect in a world where we want to address all unabated uh, fossil emissions, but it is significantly better than some of the liquid fuels and certainly solid fuel options. So that, that thank you for painting that picture. So I do want to talk about real sustainability. Uh, it's what I addressed with your audience of, of energy stakeholders in Bogota. And it's the idea that these conversations are all happening in a climate centric world. Being able to somehow balance the priorities of the energy transition with raising entire communities out of poverty is a really unique challenge. And I, I would love to get your thoughts about how important is it to be climate-centric in Colombia? And how's Promigas thinking about that? And let me probably address the framework that you have in your last book on real decarbonization, because I think you point out a very good way of having these conversations. We need to be able to talk with climate hawks, okay? We have the need to be able to have this difficult conversation. And we need to be able to cross the aisle 
and find common ground for cooperation. Because if we do not, we will be affecting the lives of 14 million customers that already rely on natural gas. Okay. And not understanding that, it's a lose lose for everyone. And so you gave us some tips that are part of the framework that you have in your book that I think are very valuable. You need to engage, not educate. And that's for both parts. For those like me, that we believe that we need to make the energy transition happen, but the natural gas is a key energy source during that transition because it helps moving people out of poverty. It helps providing reliability and security of supply to the country. And it has a much lower environmental impact than liquid fuels or solid fuels that are currently being used. So it's a key element of the transition. I'm a firm believer of that, but I need to find common ground with the climate hawks that think that the transition could happen much more quickly. And if we identified, as you mentioned during your conversation in Colombia, those things that, are, that we share in that vision of a new transition is a very first good step to have the discussion on real sustainability. So we need to have the conversation. We need to be able to cross the aisle, engage rather than educate, and start the difficult conversation. I'm so glad to hear you say that. And it is heartening. And I think probably your energy poverty index is going to be one of those great bridges across the aisle. I've never met anyone who's opposed to raising communities' standard of living and raising entire communities' well-being. So will you talk a little bit about your energy poverty index and um, what you're doing with it and how you're using that as a tool for engaging? I'm glad that you asked. We launched our index last week. And it has had a great impact in Colombia, very well received by universities, uh, stakeholders, industry, and I would say public officials. Uh, what was our motivation when we elaborated this index? First, we thought it should be multidimensional. And it's the first kind of report of its kind in Colombia. And I would say even in Latin America, because we have studied different sources, we found an estimation in a study with, of CEPAL. But when we thought of multidimensional aspects, I think it only had very few, not the 15 aspects that we are considering in this index. And this, this contribution was made because official poverty measurement methodologies in the country such as the multidimensional poverty index and the monetary poverty line, they do not include the energy dimension and its relationship to well-being. And so inspired in this great economist, Tamar Shazen, whom I admired a lot, we took an approach that considers how energy use can contribute to many human realizations and improve human capabilities. And thus, the, the index that we developed not only considers issues of access, as the ones we were discussing recently, 
but also measures the possibility of carrying out basic human achievements that use energy as a direct mean. And I think that's the main contribution of the index. And that was the motivation. Sometimes you hear people mentioning that we should decrease energy consumption. And that brings me back to the phase of the energy transition in which a developing country is. We should increase the energy intensity and use of a big part of the population because they are way behind and they are not able to realize a lot of or carry out basic human achievements that represent a lot of well-being because they don't have uh, as much as energy sources as many of the wealthy people uh, or as you have in many wealthy countries. So what does the index represent and how does it work? The index allows us to uh, identify people who simultaneously have deficiencies in access, quality, and ownership of electricity devices. The index includes, for example, components such as access to quality of energy, if, they, if a household has access to electric energy, fuel for cooking, and the quality of that energy that they receive. And when we mean quality, we're speaking about the frequency and the duration of interruptions of the service. So as you were mentioning, Tisha, earlier, if a household has to go every morning to pick up the wood, and usually it's women and girls who go and do this and take two or three hours of their time to go and search for the wood. The little girl doesn't go to school. It has a lot of gender impact. But if that day it's raining, how do they secure the dry wood necessary for cooking? The frequency with which they do this and the interruption that they have in that kind of way of managing their energy, it's something that the index considers, as well as the frequency of interruptions and quality of energy that a household at an urban area with electricity has. So that's what a first component of the index. A second component that we consider in the index is a functional and time-liberating household. And what do we mean by that? Does the household has have a washing machine? That's also a significant aspect because the impact of having a washing machine in a poor household on gender is tremendous. A woman that works the whole week and that has to wash the clothes of its young people during the weekends never rests. So we call this the time liberating activities that having energy or secure energy source with quality provides to a household and increases well-being. So do they have a washing machine? Do they have a fridge? So that they do not have to, do not have to go on a daily basis to buy those things that require refrigerators. Do they have an electric or gas stove? Do they have thermal comfort through a fan or an air conditioning? Or for, in the cold areas of the country, for washing themselves with hot water? Do they have an exclusive space within their home for cooking or not? So that's what we called in the index the a functional and time-liberating household. A third aspect, it's related 
to learning and communicating. And this is much more related to the social use of energy. And here we evaluate things such as the internet. Do they have a connection to the internet? Do they have a computer or tablet? Do they have a smartphone or TV set? How do they connect to the world? And a fourth line of an aspect that we evaluate in this index is related to public goods and if the territory where the household is is equipped for the well-being. And that means schools with electricity. It means early childhood centers with gas or electricity and a financial ecosystem or cash dispenser in the area. Do they have to walk? These are public goods. Soon we will be evaluating, next year we hope, aspects associated to mobility and aspects associated to public lightning for parks, roads, in terms of security. So we have 15 variables concentrated on four main issues in the index, which are access and quality of energy. The second is a functional and time-liberating household. The third is how are they prepared for learning and communicating. And the fourth one is the role of energy in the territory for having appropriate public goods in that territory. Can I go into the results of what we have found? Before you do that, let me just reflect back to you how much this index paints a picture of the centrality of energy to reaching human potential as individuals, as families, as communities, as societies, because the elements you're mentioning, I I feel well-versed in this topic, but you're mentioning elements with regards to time liberating activities and public goods, which aren't on my radar as part of creating prosperity, well-being, and helping reach human potential. So I'm really excited to see the index. And as you talk a little bit about the results, will you also mention if it will be available in English for our audience that we can link to it? Yeah, we have an app where we can find the report and it soon will be there published in English. And we're thinking of going out and make a roadshow to multilateral agencies so that we're able to have this kind of indexes worldwide so that we can compare energy poverty and its evolution across countries. And we were very happy. And going back to your initial comment, we were usually focusing our discussion in energy poverty only on energy access. And it goes much more beyond that. Mm -hmm. And that's why we moved away from the monetary poverty indices that usually countries have or the multidimensional poverty line that countries use and do something very specific to energy. And that's probably the the main contribution of this index. So maybe I can speak about the results, for for example. What came came about from this first index? First, it shows that 18.5% of the population in Colombia is in a situation of energy poverty. So almost one out of five Colombians is in energy, energy poverty. And while there are 42.1 million people who are not in energy poverty, there are still 9.6 million people in Colombia under this condition. And this will help policymakers focus actions on those 9.6 million people. 
And although progress has been made in energy matters, Colombia has one of the best coverages, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of electricity. We have 97% of electricity coverage, 70% in natural gas. The index makes visible the challenges still faced by those 9.6 million people considered as energy poor. And in terms of challenges of access, but also of quality, let me give you some data of those 9.6 million people. 8% do not have electricity, access problem. 61.8% of those 9.6 million people live in municipalities with poor quality of service. Lot of interruptions. And the duration of the interruptions is very long. And worst of those 9.6 million people, 47% still cook with firewood, coal, and waste. That should be a first target of policymakers. How to move those people away from energy poverty. The index also highlights that energy poverty in remote rural areas is 11 times that of large urban areas. 47.9% in remote rural areas compared to only 4.3% of energy poverty in well-developed urban areas. That's an inequality measure. Gaps between states, in Colombia we call them departments. We have found a lot of gaps. And gaps between states are greater than those observed according to the degree of urbanization. While we have states like Quindío, the island of San Andres, the large metropolitan area of Bogotá and the state of Valle del Cauca in Colombia, uh, they registered energy poverty indexes below 4%. We have a lot of states in the Amazonian region and in the Pacific region that have incidence of energy poverty above 70%, which is critical, close to the forests, and in, in the Pacific and Amazonian region. And the index also, and this is very important, and I liked that result, shows the significance of natural gas in energy poverty in, and in the energy poverty reduction agenda. Why? Because while the percentage of energy poverty of the population that does not have natural gas is of 44.5%, households that have natural gas are energy pool only in 6.6%. And that's a very interesting result. You're painting such an important understanding, I think. It's very easy to oversimplify both climate and energy access discussions. And what you're conveying to us is that massive differences exist, not just by country, but by regions within countries and the opportunities, there's there's a lot of very low-hanging fruit that remains for both mitigating health impacts of indoor air quality cooking over biomass, reducing greenhouse gas emissions by making these transitions. I love the many, many layers of nuance of this report, and I can't wait to dig into it and figure out. We'll have to have a follow-up conversation about how this can be a tool for the engagement, not educate, because there's just so much that we could find common ground across diverse perspectives. 
because as I mentioned earlier, no one is opposed to meeting human potential. And maybe this will be a, a way for us to have different kinds of conversations. But let me jump in there because you just mentioned one thing that, it's, that, I, that I love about the index and how to engage and not educate. So for those people that live in the Amazon region, in the Pacific region, they have a problem of access and we should work on that. But the index also tells us that for people that are energy poor in the urban areas, the action is completely different. It's what we call the second generation of policy actions. For example, bringing a dishwasher or machine or, or, or laundry washer to women in poor urban areas could help them move out of energy poverty, helping and assisting them to connect to the internet. For them in urban areas, it could be much better and not speak of access because they already have the access. What they need is to move on a second generation of policies. Mm to increase their well-being. I think engaging, the uh, engaging in the discussion with policymakers around this is much more useful than discussing the other topics. That was a great nuance that you pointed out there. I find that really interesting. I want to make sure I foreshadowed for our audience that Promigas isn't just getting gas to people across Colombia and Peru, but you also have a net zero goal emissions commitment goals, and some innovative projects that you're working on. Can you talk a little bit about how you're balancing your main business objectives with these net zero and decarbonization ambitions? Definitely. And, and thanks for, for asking this too. We are aware of the climate effects of what we do. Natural gas is still a fossil fuel. And we need not only to decarbonize our operations, but help our customers decarbonize their energy usage. So last year, uh, we began a thorough exercise to measure much better what a carbon footprint is and how we project that carbon footprint in the coming years. And we formulated a decarbonization roadmap with a commitment to reduce carbon footprint intensity represented in tons of carbon dioxide for scopes one and two. And we want to reduce that by 50% by 2028 and achieve carbon neutrality by 2040. To achieve that, a roadmap has 22 initiatives covering all our subsidiaries. And we have created four working groups first group that is working in energy efficiency, a second group which is working on asset integrity, and that means identifying gas leaks in our systems, our compressors, our plants. So energy integrity is a key aspect. A third group working on low carbon energy sources, and a final group contract management which I also believe it's important in, in the way, for example, uh, how we purchase our energy. Uh, are we purchasing from hydro source or uh, our wind source and solar power source or from a thermal source? Those are the kinds of things when we, that we refer to when we speak about contract management. And we are taking action in, in this front. 22 initiatives is extraordinary. And there's two I'd love that I learned about when I was in Bogota that I'd love to have you highlight in our in our final 
few minutes together. Can you talk a little bit about your green hydrogen project? Yeah, it's something through which we have learned a lot. In 2022, in March 2022, we launched the first green hydrogen production facility and injection into natural gas networks in Latin America. And two months later, we formalized an alliance with Sumitomo Corporation to develop the hydrogen-based mobility market in Colombia and Peru. Those actions we took last year. The first project involved investing around $1.5 million, but it's pioneering in terms of it's the first of its nature in Latin America, currently a household in Cartagena that is cooking with methane. It's receiving that methane blended with hydrogen and green hydrogen produced with energy that comes from solar panels. We have the capacity to increase that plant, which currently is small, only 1.5 tons per year, but increase it in size, multiply by 18, it will receive the appropriate regulatory signal. So we are working in a regulatory sandbox with the government so that that green hydrogen that goes into the network blended with methane is also regulated and compensated because currently we are doing it freely. The pilot, uh, which has been in operation now for 18 months, has allowed us to gain valuable insights. We have characterized the solar conversion efficiency of those panels from 13 to 15%. And the electromechanical conversion of the electrolyzer, uh, we have characterized it from 40 to 48%, which allows us to estimate how we can increase the size of the plant. This is very useful information. Additionally, we have developed a computational models that indicate that below 0.2% hydrogen concentration in the blend, the stratification problem that we have in the, in the pipe is no longer relevant after 20 meters. So that's very important for the integrity of the pipelines. One important aspect of our plant is that the engineering design was done in Colombia. And we brought our own engineering and maintenance teams uh, 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 to work on this. This is something that we will feel very proud about. One last thing that I want to, to highlight is the research that we're doing with this hydrogen plant in our labs, which I think it's contributing a lot to the discussion worldwide, not only in Colombia. We are part of the Stanford Natural Gas Initiative, and we will be sharing the results of these lab results that we're carrying out there and in other places. For example, what are we doing now in our labs? We're testing different samples of steel grades that are of different age. We're in our digging pipelines that are 40-year-old, 30-year-old, 20-year-old, 10 meters on average of those pipelines, bringing them to our labs. And these pipelines have different material thickness. And we're testing different ranges of hydrogen blends, 5 10%, and 100% for short and long periods in our labs to see how the integrity is affected. Because everyone has done this with computational models, but not in reality. And we're doing that. And we think with this will help contribute to a great degree in the discussion, in the scientific discussion, because that will give us some sight of how to convert existing infrastructure, gas infrastructure, oil infrastructure, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, if we want to use it for hydrogen. So this, we're testing the results and we feel very proud about this. 
you're really highlighting why I wanted to talk to you because in a country with such uh, tremendous opportunity and challenge just around expanding gas infrastructure and meeting need for gas demand, you're doing the things that share ambition with climate hawks. You're first of its kind in Latin American green hydrogen. You're, as far as I know, first in the world lab work on hydrogen blending. It's just quite extraordinary, the efforts you have underway. I want to, on that note, give you the final word, a question I ask all my guests. What are you most optimistic about? I would say that I am am most optimistic about the future of clean and sustainable energy in Colombia. And natural gas has been and will be essential in lowering emissions and giving millions of Colombians access to reliable and affordable energy. It's key for the transition. And I believe that natural gas sector has an enormous potential for future expansion and innovation in a country. I'm optimistic about that. And I want Promigas to be a key actor in that vision. And I believe that we're currently being, and we need to sustain and push the limits in the discussions, in the scientific discussions. And I'm optimistic about being able to do that. I do, I do, I'm very happy of what we're doing. But I do see uh, the future of clean and sustainable energy in Colombia with optimism. Mm. Well, Juan Manuel, I want to add to your optimism with my optimism that in a world that is polarized, so polarized around energy and climate issues, Colombia and Promigas are providing a real leadership opportunity to do both, to raise communities out of poverty with meaningful energy access and and measure it and talk about it in unique ways and to be planning for and creating the decarbonized energy system of the future at the same time. You're providing unique leadership and I think Colombia and Promigas are uniquely position to provide some examples for how we can transcend polarization and put human prosperity and well-being at the forefront of these conversations. So Juan Manuel, thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thanks podcast. Thanks, Tisha. Thanks for this very kind invitation and for allowing us to share our thoughts in this very important space. Thanks a lot. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Juan Manuel for joining me. I just love how Promigas is not content to just articulate why we need natural gas in the world, which we do, but is also simultaneously doing real studies like their hydrogen blending lab work to prepare for the energy system of the future. I would like to know what you heard about this conversation, and I would love for you to take a moment and rate and review our podcast. It helps other listeners find us. If you'd like to know more about the work we're doing at Adam and Teen, please visit us at energythinks.com. I'd like to thank my colleague, Adon Rubio, who makes all things podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler. Deseándole a usted y a los suyos felicidad, prosperidad y buena salud.